more cool than that. You know, we live in a world where we, we, we talk a lot about thank you, ladies. We talk a lot about, you know, how fun this, how cool that is. But man, is there anything more cool than the overwhelming, reckless love of God? Thank you so much for the reminder this morning, you guys. Um, I love the music set. I love that guitar group, solo, duo, trio, whatever that was that was going on in the middle of it. Um, I hope you appreciate the skill level of the folks who lead music in our church. I mean, it's a high level of skill across the entire group from youngest to oldest. And uh, man, we are blessed. Thank you very, very much. Um, how many of you were, were reading the, the lines that were on the screen while they were playing? That, that set of lines were the heavens of parchment were every tree a quill and were every man a scribe was found carved by hand in the wall of a prison cell. And it became the root and the anchor for that song and that song came out of that discovery. Just an amazing, amazing statement about who God is. A very appropriate set of songs today because uh, we are back in Matthew chapter 8. Pastor Tim... Uh, took us through the perilous, reckless uh, relationship that Jesus had with the leper in Matthew chapter 8. Um, as, the, uh, as he's finishing the Sermon on the Mount, he's making those proclamations, those sort of mosaic statements at the end. And as he wraps those up, you know, the Bible is, Matthew's been making it clear to us that he's there on the mountain like Moses. He's sitting like a leader sits. And he's making these proclamations one after another. And they keep running into the face of the, our thinking about what God is like and what Moses is taught about God. And as he makes these proclamations, as they unfold one by one, we're being told, look at this guy. He's like Moses. Look at this guy. He's like Moses. Then he gets up and he heads down the mountain. And everything begins to kind of, kind of change. And, and, and in the face of all of this mosaic behavior, the actions of Jesus begin to take another turn. And the actions of Jesus begin to say something about God in a different way, in a way they hadn't thought of before. Uh, we have the words of Jesus, then we have the activity of Jesus. It's the words, things Jesus is stating that are revolutionary and, and, and transformative in their own right. And then the actions of Jesus which prove this out in feet. It's Hebrews chapter 1 being played out in front of us. That first verse of, of Hebrews when it's saying, God in the times past spoke to us by the prophets and now through His Son. We've heard His words. Now we get to see Him put those words into action. We get to see how the things Jesus says apply to us. And so as we start there today, I want to invite you to join me again for just a, a, a minute and a word of prayer. Father, we are so blessed that You recklessly love the likes of us. It's easy to apply this to the people of Scripture even the people down the street. I pray that today you will bring it home to our own hearts. That you passionately, recklessly love us. In your name we pray. Amen. I'm calling this uh, the Jesus Coaster. Um, so my son told me this week, 
that there's a new roller coaster in California. Um, I'm, I'm a, a, a bit of a roller coaster fan. Um, I like roller coasters. I, that whole that whole anticipation of the old school roller coaster when you're climbing up and it's clicking click 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 that's just adrenaline music to me click 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 I'm just starting to get hyped up as we start reaching the top and you know you get to the top and you go over that crest there's always that moment of you're kind of climbing click 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 and you're you're waiting as it how is anybody here not old enough to have ever heard a ro- roller coaster click if you haven't go to Santa Cruz you you are not I saw that hand. <laughs> Go to Santa Cruz and ride the old wooden roller coaster. It'll give you the thrill. You'll, you'll ride it and think, is this thing actually going to hold up? But that's part of the thrill of the whole excitement. If it doesn't, the next thing you see is Jesus. What are you worried about? But as you click, 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 click to the top, and you just you, you sort of break over the top, it's almost like as you reach the top, you kind of get that moment of quiet anticipation you know what I mean? You kind of come up over the top, the clicking starts, the clicking ceases, and as you come over the top, it's, it's not quite accelerating yet, but you know it's about to, and wow, mom, you go, and down and around and through it up. This new roller coaster apparently hits 53 miles an hour. It's, it's just down in Santa Clara. We can all make it if we try. It's, it's worth going to. What I've noticed about my roller coaster riding now is that um, I'm not as good at it as I used to be. I still have all the interest and all, just talking about it's making me excited. But I rode a roller coaster with my youngest son. My youngest son's a, a big roller coaster fan. One of his goals in life is to ride all the fastest roller coasters in the world. Um, he and I went on one that you actually, you didn't, you didn't stand up, but you didn't sit down. I don't know if you know about it. It's down in Southern California. And you kind of sit on what feels like a bicycle seat. An uncomfortable bicycle seat. So your feet are down. You're, you're sitting. You're kind of in an upright position. I'd never ridden a roller coaster like that. And so your body's going through all the turns and twists like this, right? You're going all of that, but you're like you're standing up. That kind of messed with my equilibrium. I didn't tell my son, and he's not here, so don't you tell him. Actually, he should be in San Diego today. It's his anniversary tomorrow. As he was, as I was getting off this roller coaster, I'm thinking, oh man, just don't fall over. Keep your cool until you get your bearings here. Because I was com- completely kind of wobbled by that one. I would do it again. Because I didn't, I didn't actually get sick. Just wobbly. So wobbly's okay. Sick is teacups. Don't do that. <laughs> Amazing that a simple little ride like that makes everybody lose their lunch. I'm calling this the Jesus Coaster because it throws off the equilibrium of the people who are watching. It tosses them all around. They don't understand what's going on. It messes with their head. And uh, Matthew tries to give it some context as he gets toward the end of these events. In Matthew chapter 8, we're looking at verse 17 on the screen. It says, this, that it might be fulfilled, this happened, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken of by Isaiah the prophet, saying, he himself, Jesus, took our infirmities and bore our sickness. It throws everybody off that so much that Matthew remembers it. He remembers it for years. We think it may have been a decade or more before these guys start writing the Gospels. 
So he remembers it long enough that he kind of has to go back and say, man, that was a weird day. How do I help people understand what was going on? And so he gives it some context. So I want you to hang on to this context. We'll come back to it a little later. But I want you to hang on to the context because it's real important for an understanding of why everybody's so sort of off their moorings. He says, this happened so that Jesus would fulfill Isaiah 53 verse 4, that he himself took our infirmities, and bore our sicknesses. It all starts with this disorientation that Jesus has. He comes off the hill. Following Jesus is always disorienting. Have you found that to be true? Following Jesus keeps you home on a Friday night, Bertie. I understand. I went to high school too. And uh, I didn't get a lot of those invitations either for the same reasons. But it's that, 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 that thing that keeps you on a different plane. You do different things. You make different choices. And it disorients you in the world you live in. Because the world we live in is bent a little. And when you actually walk upright, you're the one who looks weird. Everybody else is walking like this, and you're standing upright. And so you're the one who looks out of orientation, when in reality you're the one walking the straight line. Walking with Jesus, following Jesus is disorienting. The norms of our world are broken, which is what you would expect, right? You choose righteousness over sin, and the norms of the world, which is built on that sinful understanding, are thrown off, and it's a little disorienting. So if you're in high school, especially, this, that's a very, uh, it's a very delicate age, a delicate time to live. And you're making so many decisions, and you're being reoriented on your own. As you're walking through those steps, understand this is okay and normal. That you feel a little out of, out of orientation is actually normal because you are out of orientation with the brokenness of our world. You're just out of a little orientation. Um, and it doesn't change when you're 65. You'll still feel a little out of orientation. You'll just be old enough not to care about it. Or mad enough or grumpy enough or whatever it happens to be at 65 when you get there. Be a happy 65-year-old. Here's how it starts. Tim brought you here last week. It's the beginning of Matthew chapter 8, verses 1 to 4. When he had come down the mountain, so Jesus has been up talking like Moses on the mountain. When he had come down the multitude, or down the mountain, a great multitude followed him. A bunch of people are gathered around. He keeps repeating this. Jesus has lots of followers. Matthew keeps wanting us to understand that. And behold, and behold. We should use the word more. Remember I told you, we should use this word more. Behold. You should walk into your house and say to your children, Behold, your father is home. Don't you think that would be a better way to come in your, in your door? You know, Behold, I would like some dinner. And behold, a leper came. Behold, he's saying, and what happened next was kind of crazy. What happened next was kind of wild. A leper came. Now, you don't think that's all that weird, but Pastor Tim told you last week, you weren't supposed to associate with lepers. They were supposed to keep their distance. They were supposed to stay back. They were supposed to be about 20 to 25 feet away from you if the wind was blowing their direction. If the wind was blowing from them towards you, they were supposed to stay about 100 feet away. They were not supposed to be beholding themselves right in the middle of a crowd. But this guy beholds himself right in the crowd. Behold, I cometh. He comes walking right into the crowd. And this, of course, the crowd is shocked. The story gets completely crazy when Jesus and the leper begin to interact. And what, do you remember what Jesus does in this story? If you weren't here last week, do you remember what happens? 
The Bible says that Jesus reaches out and actually touches this guy. Now today, you know, we're not really all that freaked out by it. But for every single person in that multitudinous crowd, including the disciples, including Matthew, Levi, it was a little, well, no, no, it was way weird. It was beyond disorienting. It, it, now the disciples have to ask themselves, how, how close can we get to Jesus? He's now unclean because he's touched a leper. And touching a leper is not unclean like touching, you know, some other thing, a lizard or something. This is unclean like you could die. They understood that somehow you could get leprosy by being around lepers. And so they figured Jesus now was in trouble. What does, Mark, what does Matthew say at the end of this thing? He took on our infirmities. Matthew's trying to explain why Jesus would go to such wild extremes as to touch the leper. But it doesn't end there. It doesn't end. It, it, it keeps going. Now, so he leaves, he goes down, he has the leper incident. And just about the time when things are kind of calming down, they've walked down the road, they walk down the hillside, they're coming to Capernaum. If they took the shortcut, it's, a, it's less than a mile. If they went the long way by the road, it may be a couple of miles. But as Jesus is coming near Capernaum, now there's another behold. Now when Jesus entered, entered Capernaum, a centurion came. A centurion came. Now this isn't quite as bad as a leper, but it's up there. That's where I'm going to pick up the story. If you have your Bible, if you have your devices, this is where we're going to be for a little bit. Um, I just wanted to read it with you this morning to change it up because I've been putting everything on the screen. And you're, 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 you're getting less uh, acquainted with bringing this with you. So just in case, we'll get you started back at it. Here we are in chapter 8, verse 5. Now, when, the, when Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him, pleading with him, saying... Now, stop. A centurion came to him. Not quite as bad as a leper, but a Gentile is unclean. So we have the unclean, the man, this, the leper, probably a Jew because they don't mention that he was a Gentile. Now you have the unclean, the centurion. He also comes up to Jesus. So this isn't quite a behold, a centurion, but it's still off-putting. It's still odd. It's still, ah, this is uncomfortable. What is going on here? And, and, and here's this multitude of people and they're witnessing a second event that Jesus shouldn't be participating in. Do you understand that? Is this making, making a contextual sense to you? They would have thought he shouldn't be talking to this guy. Up walks the centurion. How do they know he's a centurion? There's a certain set of clothing he has to wear. There's a certain apparel that he has that de- identifies him. In the Roman legion, a legion of about 6,000 people classically, would then be divided up into hundreds. And those hundreds, each of those hundreds would have a centurion in charge of that hundred. They're really sort of the, the, the strength of the Roman military. They're in charge of morale. They're in charge of executing what's going on. A centurion was supposed to be a kind of person not given to loud outbursts and not given to bold charges. He wasn't supposed to just run into the, into the, the fray, but who was willing to die defending his post. 
So you kind of get the idea of who this guy is to the Romans. He's the anchor point of their military. This guy is a very important man in the, in the Roman military. For the Jew, he's an occupier. And he is the kind of level that they would interact with most often. The regular, regular soldier on the street was being told to mess with them, torture them, do whatever to them by their boss. He's their boss. Get it? Behold the centurion. The centurion comes up to Jesus. And the, and the Bible says when he came to him, he was pleading with him. Now, first thing you have to understand is how awkward that is. These guys don't plead. These guys don't plead. They give orders. This guy should have come to Jesus and say, You, Nazareth rabbi guy, I need to talk to you. That's how this should have gone down. But instead he comes up and he's pleading with him, saying, Lord, stop. Should this Roman centurion be call, being called this Nazareth rabbi guy, Lord? Certainly not. Certainly not. Most of the people around him aren't ready for this yet. The Jews aren't calling him Lord. This testimony from this man is very out of context all by itself. Lord, my servant, stop. Why does he care about his servant? When you start doing the research on, on the, the, the importance of servants in the Roman lifestyle, in the structure, a servant was simply described as a tool that could talk. In one incident, a, 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 a Roman, uh, <coughs> excuse me, a Roman leader, <coughs> excuse me, is writing a letter to one of his friends who's buying a farm, and he's telling him what to do when he gets the, to the farm. He's, oh, when you arrive at the farm, throw away any equipment that's broken. Um, go out and uh, dispense with anything that you don't need. And he goes through a whole list of things. In the list of things he's, he's saying for him to basically just toss aside and get rid of, he says, any servants who are old, who are infirmed, sell them and get rid of them. Just you don't want anything around that's broken or infirmed. And so the servant is just treated like a, a broken shovel. And that's their status in the Roman Empire. This guy should not be pleading on behalf of someone who is so replaceable. He can get another one of these at any corner in town. He doesn't need to be all worried about this guy. But for whatever reason, he has a connection. He has a relationship. He cares about this guy. Lord, my servant is lying at home paralyzed, dreadfully tormented. Jesus says to him, I will come and heal him. Now, isn't this what you would expect? Raise your hand if you think you'd expect this. Jesus would come. Can't see everybody in the back. Chickens, raise your hand if you don't think Jesus would come. Raise your hand if you don't want to vote. <laughs> Not helpful. This is what most of us would have expected. You go to get Jesus, Jesus comes with you, right? That's what other people actually request of Jesus. You should come. We need you to come and do this thing for me. This is what, the, what I was expecting when you read this story. But Jesus says, should I come? Shall I come with you? The centurion understands where he lives. This is not a, a, a normal guy. By the way, when you read the New Testament, have you ever paid attention to the centurions that you encounter? 
The next time you get a chance, maybe you even want to look it up today, get a thesaurus out or something, or no, this is not a thesaurus, a concordance out, and look it up. Look up the word centurion. Every time you find centurions mentioned in the New Testament, they're always very honorable people. It's like the New Testament is going out of its way to say good things about the Roman centurions. Very interesting in terms of the context of the culture where these are hated occupiers. The centurion understands where he lives. He answers and said, Lord, I am not worthy He's the man. He's like, he's like, this is like Iron Man. I am not worthy. I am not worthy that you should come under my roof, but only speak a word and my servant will be healed. For I also am a man under authority, having soldiers under me. And I say to this one, go, and he goes, and to that one, another one, come, and he comes. <clears throat> And to my servant, do this. And he does this. Jesus stops, drops his Bible, looks up at everybody, looks around at the crowd. This is what Matthew should have put in there now. <laughs> Jesus steps back. This is, a, this is amazing to Jesus. When Jesus hears what's going, what this guy's saying, he realizes what most of us don't realize. This is the first person in the New Testament record that recognizes the authority of Jesus. This is the first testimony of Jesus' real power and authority on anyone's lips in the New Testament. Other people come and say, can you heal me? Can you do this? Can you do that? This guy recognized that Jesus has authority that that doesn't have boundaries. Jesus has authority to speak and things happen. He recognizes that this is creator God-like authority. Do you see the difference? If you are come and, and touch me and do that, that's, that's cool, that's interesting, that's awesome, actually. But if you can speak and disease that's miles away has to obey you, that is a different level of authority. You get it? Do you think it applies to you? Is that still His authority in your life? Do you still recognize that Jesus can change things? Do you pray like that? I'm looking forward to a story in a, in a couple of weeks, Tim, that I hope uh, you get to tell about what's going on behind the scenes right now, why you're so crazy busy. But God sometimes steps into our world in the same manner. And uses that kind of authority to change the course of a person's life. And you know why we don't ask? Because sometimes we get a no. Don't chicken out because of no. Keep asking for the yes. We don't understand what's going on behind the scenes. We don't understand the bigger picture. We don't understand the ins and outs of what God is ins and outs of what God is doing in an individual's life. But don't chicken out on your prayers because you get a no. I mean, some of the prophets actually go back several times to get the answer they're looking for. Don't quit on the authority of God because in that same authority, He sometimes says no. 
This is the first time anybody recognized this is the kind of strength that the Creator God has. Verse 10. When Jesus heard it, He marveled and said to those who followed, Assuredly, I say to you, I have not found such great faith in all of Nazareth, Galilee, Judah, Israel. I have not found any Jewish family member, any Israeli, any one of my own blood who has faith like this. And the first century Jew passes out on the spot. And the 21st century Protestant goes, yeah, I've I've heard this story before. The disruption that Jesus just created in their heads would cause them to feel like they were on the teacups at Disneyland. It would cause them to want to lose their lunch. It was so messing with them. It was so, so completely out of the track of normal. This would, they can't believe, they couldn't possibly have a context for a person who was a non-Jew to have more faith than anyone in Israel. And he gets worse. I say to you that many will come from the east to the east of Jerusalem is the barren desert and the Babylonians and the Persians. Those enemies of Israel that have been there for hundreds of years. Pagans deep, deep, thousands of years into their paganism. They go as far as the Indus Valley and then beyond that they don't know what's out there but all they've found in their search is pagans from here to there. And the west... From the west come their oppressors, the Greeks and now the Romans. Those are the people who live out to the west. And Jesus says, many will come from the east where there are only pagans and from the west where there are only oppressors and will sit down at the banquet table at the end. This concept of the banquet table at the end is a deep understanding of the last day of earth's history. That there would be a great banquet. It's what's crazy if you start reading uh, some of the commentators and uh, some of the things that are said about it. The, the, the dinner was supposed to be Leviathan and Behemoth. Yeah, in Job, you're going to eat dinosaurs. That was the plan here. That if you read the, the commentators, they were going to pull the Leviathan from the sea and the great Behemoth, and that would be the food at this banquet at the end of, the, end of time. I really hope that's not it. I'm kind of hoping that it's not tofu either. I'm thinking God's got something better than that in his mind. I'm sure it'll be good. But they had this idea that at the end of time, all the rest of the world would be dead and they would be saved and they would sit down at this great banquet table with God. Just us and God. Has that crept into your thinking? Has that idea ever weaseled its way into your mind? Where you've kind of got, you've got that us and them spiritually thing going on? 
Jesus just said, people are going to come from these pagan worlds around us. And they're going to sit down at the banquet table at the end with God. And, and if he hasn't gotten bad enough already, then he says, and many of you, the people of God will be cast into outer darkness. You see, that's what they believed was true about all those other people. They would be in this state of being lost and in outer darkness. And Jesus says, you know, they're going to be pagans at the banquet table. And they're going to be folks among you who will be lost. Now here's, here, I, I want to do something corrective here. You can't see Jesus wagging his finger here. You can't see Jesus standing up and saying, there will be people from the east and from the west who come and eat at my banquet table and you people will be dead. That's not what's, that's not what's being done here. This is not a statement of anger, vitriol. This is a, a, a corrective statement on their thinking and a truth about what's coming. If you remember Jesus as he approached Jerusalem the last time, do you remember his attitude as he, as he was there looking down on Jerusalem? The Bible says he wept. How often I tried to gather you like a, like a hen gathers her chicks. This is not a pronouncement of judgment. It is a statement of warning and a call to actually be present, not absent. You don't get there by your lineage. You get there by demonstrating the kind of faith that this guy has. You get it? Jesus follows a simple ethic in these stories. It's the ethic of love. Jesus follows the ethic of love that a father has for their child. It's the same heartbeat in Jesus that is in God the Father. And so when this leper comes roaring through the crowd, behold, the leper came. This isn't some guy whose fingers are falling out, who's blind in one eye, who's dragging his limbs and who's oozing pus from every orifice, who stinks because he's rotting physically while he stands in front of you, who's been eating out of the garbage for years. This is his child. This is his family. This is someone he loves. And so Jesus touches him because he needs to be touched. And when you love someone, you meet them where their needs are. Jesus isn't worried about being declared unclean, which, by the way, Officially, he would have had to have gone to the priest for a pronouncement of cleanliness after this. And he would have had to shave his body and come back a week later and be seen again and then shave his eyebrows and his head. And then the priest could pronounce him clean. 
But instead of all of that, Jesus just puts his hand on it. Tim told you last week, Jesus doesn't become defiled. Jesus creates an undefiled person. But it's the ethic of love that drives the actions of Jesus. And so when the centurion comes and asks for help for his servant, it's not just some Roman thug coming to talk to Jesus. This is his child. This is someone he loves. And so he doesn't deny him the service he can provide. He says, sure, I'll help you. Sure, I'll help you. And from that distance, he heals the centurion's servant. The text goes on to tell us that evening he went to Peter's house and he healed his mother-in-law. By the way, by the way, You have three layers of people who are outcast. The leper, the centurion, and a woman whom Jesus heals. Matthew's first. There are three groups of three that are here in the next few verses. And the first trinity of healings is a leper, a centurion, and a woman. And the text goes on just to say, in that evening they brought many demon-possessed to him, cast out the spirit with a word and he healed all who were sick so that evening all sickness in the in the region around Capernaum was gone that's a pretty good next morning don't you think everybody in town wakes up the next morning and there's no more sickness from common cold to leprous limbs gone and done with reuniting Hope, sight, upright walking, all of which Jesus just does. In the evening, Peter's house. (laughs) The apostle, then looking back on the story, knowing that all of his Jewish readers would be so messed up by what they've just read, decides to give them this context, a context for these wild events. Isaiah the prophet, in the Hebrew Scriptures, has said it, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying he himself took on our infirmities and bore our weaknesses. He touched the leper and he took on the uncleanness so that man would not be unclean anymore. He blessed the centurion and healed his servant and he took on his Gentile uncleanness so that the servant would not be be hurting anymore. He went into Peter's house and he lays hands on this woman who would have transferred her uncleanness to him. He took on her infirmities so that she wouldn't have any anymore. And in fact, everybody who came from the village throughout that evening, he healed, taking on theirs and taking on another and taking on another and taking on another so that they could be relieved of their suffering. Because the ethic of love commanded it. He loved them. And so he helped them. And then there's us. We sadly read this text only at Christmas, sometimes at Easter. It's the next verse. Verse 5. And he is wounded 
for our transgressions. He is bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon Him. And by His stripes, we are healed. Would you just read this with me? Because it's ours. Okay? And He is wounded for our transgression. And He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon Him. And by His stripes, we are healed. You see, the crazy thing about this is it's still the same ethic for Jesus. The ultimate end of the ethic of love is that He would die on a cross so that we could heal of our real problem. Our sin. The ultimate final statement for Jesus is not taking on the uncleanness of a leper or a centurion or even of a woman, but taking on the unrighteousness of mankind. Let's pray. It is pretty amazing how much you love us. We are so far away from the first century, it's hard to really understand how crazy this must have been. How weird it was. How offensive it was. How world shattering it was. Lord, help us. Help us to see somehow how big a demonstration of your love this is. And how it connects with your forgiveness for each one of us. Thank you for giving your life that we might find ours. For taking our sin that we might have your righteousness. For allowing yourself to bear our stripes, our illness, our infirmities, our bruises, the wages of our sin. 